Hey friends, Ashton here, and welcome back to another episode of Good, True, and Beautiful. For the second time, uh, we have a friend of ours. He became a new friend uh, last year, 2021, but I, um, I, I, I dove further into his work after that interview because many of you reached out and you said, I loved that call. Um, and he was teaching us about the Japanese practice of gratitude, Nikon, I believe that's how you pronounce it. And um, he, when we started swapping some emails, uh, he said, you know, I've got some other work out there that you may find interesting. And so I got a copy of that book and I said, yes, this, this is beautiful too. And I would love to have you on again, especially to begin the new year. Uh, so with that being said, for the second time, uh, talking about his book, The Art of Taking Action, we have Greg Creech joining us. Greg, thanks so much for coming back. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you again, Ashton. Absolutely. So maybe some of our listeners missed out on our first call. I always just kind of want to give you some space uh, to kind of share with us who you are, what you're up to in the world. You know, when you introduce yourself, where do you begin? Well, you know, I was thinking about that, that question, and I think that uh, the best way I could really describe what my life's work is, I've been doing this for a little over 30 years now, is uh, that I really am trying to uh, import. I'm, I'm like an import-export person, except I don't really do any exporting. But I'm trying to import the wisdom of the Orient, of the East, Japan, and, and uh, China, and, and other countries in Asia, Eastern philosophy. I've been a student of Buddhism since I was in college. And um, be able to kind of translate into how to apply that to contemporary Western living as, as we have here in North America. So I think that's really a good way of, of a concise way of, of characterizing what I do. Beautiful. Well said. Um, and I mentioned in the intro, you know, that you and I first connected over uh, the practice of uh, Nikon and, and, you know, this, this idea of uh, reflecting and you shared your story about, um, you know, really understanding uh, all of the things in life that we've been entrusted, that we can be grateful for. Um, this next book, uh, The Art of Taking Action, talk to me about, like, why this book? You know, right? You write one that's about grounding yourself and being grateful, and then you've got this book that's that's kind of takes a different step, you know, from the Eastern contemplative stance. It goes, yeah, well, you do need to reflect, but you also need to, need to go do something. Uh, so talk to me about the, 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 you know, why you wrote this book, The Art of Taking Action. Well, I think that uh, part of my own training and, and background in Japanese psychology is this reflective approach called Nikon. And that was the first book I ever wrote. And I'm still very, you know, deeply um, believe in that, in the, the practice of self-reflection as being meaningful to us and important to us and something that we need to do more of in, in a busy Western uh, kind of cultural environment. But the other side of that work, uh, kind of the, if you think of it as a kind of yin yang, the other side of that work uh, really comes from something called Morita therapy, which uh, is sometimes referred to as the psychology of action. And it's really uh, a different kind of focus. You know, when we think about, the practices from uh, the East, uh, we often think about, for instance, meditation, we think about contemplative practice. And that's, that's been a really important part, I think, of Eastern wisdom. But I think uh, the other side of that is that there actually is a um, good reason to think that we can learn uh, something about action and taking action also from Eastern tradition. And if we look at uh, some of the people uh, who have, I would consider to be personally my heroes you know, from the East, uh, in particular Gandhi stands out, mm -hmm. for example. Um, he was really a man of action. In fact, uh, uh, the one of the news reporters who wrote about uh, being assigned to cover him and, and travel with him was 30 years younger than him and said when Gandhi basically was on the move, which he he was always walking. He walked everywhere. It was hard to keep up with him. Hmm. Um, and if you think about what he achieved, you know, the, the uh, independence of uh, the country of Indi India from the British Empire at the time, amazing achievement. And, and he did that through action. Um, so I think that um, it's not just contemplative practice that we can learn from the Eastern traditions, but also um, something related 
to actually taking action and, and uh, doing important work in our life. And that's the other side of this work that um, hopefully we'll be talking about uh, tonight. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of my, uh, a man that's meant a great deal to me was the founder of the Center for Contemplation and Action, for Action and Contemplation, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they are, they it's, it's two sides of the same coin, right? You have mm-hmm. to have uh, both of these. I, I'm, I'm uh, very interested into your uh, insights on the word art, because mm-hmm. um, I, I think it, it, it presents an invitation when we think about taking action. When, when I hear someone talk about the art of something, I think of cultivation. I think of time. I think about uh, uh, being learned. I, I, I just think of process. Talk to me mm-hmm. about um, art and practice in this idea of um, taking action. I think that that's a, is before we really get going into this, I think that that's a great insight that uh, maybe our listeners could find uh, as far as your reflection goes on, on this actually being an art that we're talking about? Well, I see art as kind of uh, in contrast to science, right? And I think in, in science, um, we, we're trying to kind of discover uh, the right way or the, um, the best way to do it. What's, what's the equation, right, for succeeding, whether it's in curing somebody of a a disease or um, uh, replacing, doing a knee replacement in someone, you know, what's, what's the the best that we can, can do and how we find that out through, you know, scientific experimentation. But I think in an art, uh, we start with the idea that there's really no right way to do something, Mm -hmm. right? That uh, you're, you're a musician as am I, and, and it's not like there's a, a right way to uh, play music or to write a song. There might be uh, strategies that, that mm-hmm. work for more people than others. But uh, I always think about, in, in terms of music, I always think about this uh, conversation between Bob Dylan and, uh, um, oh, what was the, I can't remember the man who was the poet um, uh, who died not too long ago, but uh, you would recognize his name anyway. And, and they had completely different songwriting styles, com- completely mm-hmm. different. Um, Leonard Cohen, oh, that's yeah. what I was thinking yeah, yeah, yeah. of. Yeah. And uh, they said that he met Dylan once and Dylan, you know, they were talking about songwriting and he, he admired one of Dylan's songs. He says, you know, how long did it take you to write that song? And Dylan said about 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then Dylan asked him about one of his songs. He said, how long did it take you to write this? And Leonard Cohen said, it took me about a year. Um, and then he, he said it later, he said it, he said he had to confess that he wasn't telling the truth. He was kind of embarrassed to say that it actually took him about four years. Um, <laughs> so, so in art, you know, I think there's no right way to do something. We're, we're kind of muddling along and we're learning from our own experience, right? So um, uh, we do something, I'm a big proponent of, of experimentation in, in art. Um, you know, we try something a particular way uh, and it comes out good so we kind of move in that direction maybe it doesn't work we, we do something different but uh it's much more of a muddling through process um and a, a creative process that really doesn't have a kind of rational foundation to it right mm. um you wake up in the middle of the night and you have a song in your head or something there's no rational explanation for that um it just basically suddenly it happens so uh so when i think about the the art of taking action um I'm really part part of why I'm thinking of it as an artist because I don't think that there's um, a science behind this, a right way to do things. Um, but I do think that there's important principles and ideas that we want to consider as we kind of forge our own path. Yeah, beautiful, well said. Um, and, and really, I think that that helps kind of turn the page into this next conversation about the tax we pay when things don't get done. Right. When when um, and, and I think you and I could list these out for a long time. Right. Anxiety, depression, uh, angst, uh, all of these different things happen. You know, it talk to me about, you know, your reason. You, I think you kind of begin the book of, of like this is why this is important. Right. To have that momentum, progress, moving towards that which, fi- you, you know, brings you meaning and purpose in life. You want to talk through you know, kind of what happens when we aren't properly taking action in our lives. 
Well, you know, one of, one of the things I say right at the beginning of the book is that if, if we turned on the news tonight and, and they announced that there's been a new discovery in the mental health field and it, it dramatically reduces anxiety and it significantly reduces depression and uh, it uh, in, increases self-esteem, it helps build trust in relationships, it helps people to achieve their goals, uh, and, it, and it goes on and on, and we're thinking, wow, what, what, what is this new discovery? You know, is it a particular form of therapy? Is it, a, is it psychiatric medication? Is it a pill I could take? And we find out that it's basically taking action, <laughs> that, that all of these characteristics of taking action um, apply to our life and to our mental health. Um, and so, but for all of those benefits, the, the training that exists within the traditional Western mental health field in terms of helping people take action to me is very limited. Hmm. You know, that, mm -hmm. that when we think of uh, therapeutic intervention or therapeutic help, we think about sitting in an office and talking to somebody. Yeah. But um, in many cases, um, what we need to be doing in our life is actually taking action, which uh, you think about, well, how does that help, for instance, reduce, reduce anxiety? So uh, sometimes when I give a workshop, we, we start the workshop with a, a little exercise, and it involves people having to introduce somebody else in the workshop that they've talked to, but they weren't allowed to take notes. Now they have to introduce them to a whole group of strangers, right? Mm -hmm. And most people do not like to do that. They do not like to be in that situation, particularly where they couldn't take any notes. And so what happens? So I asked I ask people to raise their hand, okay, who would like to go first, right? And usually there's, there's maybe just one or two hands, who would like to go next? And then, and of course, everybody's trying to basically wait because this is a very, um, uh, they see it as a risky uh, experience and they feel a lot of anxiety about it. So what's the strategy? You feel anxiety, you basically procrastinate, mm -hmm. right? But when, and, and so after we do the exercise, I use this as a way to talk about this material and this approach because uh, when we look back, we see it, and I'll frame the question like this. I'll say, if you wanted to maximize your anxiety in this exercise, what's the perfect, stretching, ex, the perfect strategy for maximizing your anxiety? And the answer, of course, is go last. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so the, per, the person who goes last has so much more time to suffer than the person who goes first, mm -hmm. right? And, we, and if you just simply um, generalize that with a lot of the things that you, you need to be doing in your life, if, if we could develop the capacity to do the, the things that are really important when they need to be done, we could reduce, reduce a lot of our um, uh, psychological suffering, yeah. right? Yeah. Not all of it, not all of it, but a lot of it, particularly the things that come with putting things off um, that are important to do, but because of our feeling state, because we, we feel uncomfortable doing it, because we feel afraid, because we feel anxious, because we're not exactly sure how to do this kind of thing, we put it off. And as a result, it kind of stays on the table and it stays on our mental table um, and, and causes a lot of agitation in our life. So I think it's a really important aspect of mental health that's been overlooked by traditional mental health systems. Absolutely. And, and you get into the book there about this what and when conversation that kind of moves into like almost like an awakening, a paying attention, a taking a step back and uh, uh, really reflecting on like, hey, where are you not taking action? Where, you know, you use the dirty dishes example, you know, mm -hmm. uh, from, from many years ago. Talk to me about the, uh, I'm going to use art again, the art of paying attention, of reflecting uh, on kind of navigating that space that then gives you the clarity of, okay, now that's what I need to be doing. I mean, I think depression and anxiety sim seem to be the waters we swim in when we don't have direction, when we don't have that clarity. And I think maybe what you argue in the book here is to have some space to pay attention a bit, and then the clarity of which direction to go with your action may, may take over. Yeah, I think it's important that we, on a regular basis, step back from our life. So we really get some perspective on how we're living and what we're doing with our time, which is the same as what we're doing with our life, right? And that stepping back can take different forms, right? It could be going on a, a formal retreat for a week someplace. Um, it could be, uh, for me, when I was in my 20s, I used to do seven to 10 day 
uh, solitary hikes uh, around the world in the mountains. I would just um, fill up a backpack with 50 pounds of food and tents and, and sleeping bags. And, and I would go off to Wyoming or the Canadian Rockies or one time to New Zealand. And I would just go out by myself for, for at least a week. And, uh, you know, at first it feels very uncomfortable because we're not used to that kind of solitude. But it really allowed me to think about um, how I'm spending my life and, and what it is that I really want to be doing and need to be doing in terms of, of kind of fulfilling the reason that I'm here. And, uh, and I think that, uh, and even travel, even just going on a trip someplace sometimes gives us that experience. I think people sometimes go away uh, on a trip to, to Europe or to Caribbean or something for a week. And it just gets you thinking about things, about your own life in a different kind of way, because you've got that distance, that psychological distance. So I really uh, encourage people to do that. And sometimes the only option is for really for you to just take a day off and, and go to a park or go to a um, some kind of state park or forest or something and just walk around and just give yourself some time to reflect you know on things if that's if that's what's workable for you um, that may be the the best you can do at that time and uh, for me um, I think some of the most important changes in my life came from those experiences in which I pulled back from my life got some perspective and then saw that, you know, I, there's some things that I really need to be doing um, or some changes I need to be making that I'm not doing. Hmm. Your um, contribution formula uh, in the book rang true for me. Um, I think I often in my personal reflections am, am asking the, the great big questions of, uh -huh. am I contributing? Does this whole thing matter? And what I'm doing uh -huh. is, does it mean something? Uh, reflection, risk, contribution, speak into that, because I, I, I loved how you, what, what you did with those three words as kind of waking us up to proper action for each of us, however that may look. Well, I think there's, there's a, um, uh, an Indian text, it's, it is maybe considered to be kind of the most epic Indian uh, text that was, it's called the Bhagavad Gita. You may be familiar with that, but it's yep. the, it's the one, it's the only book that Gandhi would take when he would go to jail, which he did frequently <laughs> in, 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 in India. It's the only thing he would take to read in jail. He said, he said, I don't need anything else. And it's also a very long book, but, um, uh, <clears throat> but I think that the, the first, you know, thing that, that we really are, or need to be doing, need to be looking at is, is really this basic question of what, what are we here to do, right? What are we here for? And, um, and everybody's, to me, got it, gonna have a different answer to that. And you may have a different answer at different points in your life even, right? But it's a question of discovering what you're here to do. And, um, and to do that, we have to actually take some time, as I just talked about for self-reflection. But even, even once we discover, or at least believe we've discovered um, what's really important for us to do. Um, in many cases, if that's something that's going to be really meaningful in our life, potentially, it's going to involve some risk. It may involve some financial risk. It may involve, you know, having to quit a well-paying job. It may involve some, some, you know, safety risk in your life. It may involve some ego risk. Mm. You know, I remember the mm. first time years ago when, when I decided um, I was going to move from being a living room musician to actually playing on stage. And I used to go to these blues jams and just be in the audience. And I decided, you know, this year I'm going to get up there and I'm going to actually play. <laughs> and, um, uh, and it, it felt very risky. And I realized, well, what was really risky about it? What I was really risking was my ego was getting up there and, and making a mistake and looking foolish or having people say, oh, that guy doesn't know how to play piano or something like that. So there's an ego risk a lot of times where, you know, to, to put ourselves out there or to take certain steps in our life, you know, we, we think about, well, how's this going to look to other people or what will people think about me, right? Um, so that's a kind of risk. So when we reflect on our lives and we discover something that's important for us to do, often we have to take some kind of risk to make that happen. And if, and if we do, it can, it can open up the door. There's no guarantee, but it can open up the door to really basically figuring out a way where we can use our life to make a contribution to the world. Um, and, and I think that's ultimately 
um, what many many of us discover. Some of us discover that early in life. Some of like some of us like Bill Gates discover it, you know, later in life after we've already made billions of mm. dollars. Um, but uh, um, for in my mind, um, the people who who study purpose, uh, for example, um, have all come to that conclusion that that the thing that's really going to give you a sense that your life is meaningful is, are you doing something to make a contribution to the world beyond your own self-interest? And, and, uh, um, and if you are, then I think you're in a, you're in a, a great path. And if you're not, ultimately, I think you begin to feel the, um, the limitations Mm. of, living a life where you feel like you're really not doing something that's contributing to, to others or to the world. Yeah. Yeah. Is it all ego risk? <laughs> I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm, sitting, I'm sitting here going, Oh God, that, this, this could, that one kind of stung. Is it, I, I, I feel like in a way it all comes back <laughs> there. Right. Right. In some way. Uh, if it if yeah. if it if the ego wasn't there, would it be risk, right? Like mm-hmm. that which is most true about us actually, you know, can't be hurt, offended, or damaged. I mean, I'm thinking, golly, it maybe it's all ego risk. Yeah. Well, I think you know, I think there may be some practically. I think there are things like our financial, you know, financial risks sure. and things yep. that we yep. we have to take if we're changing careers. But I think you know, one it's it's an interesting moment where you begin to see how much of your reluctance to do what you think you really need to be doing in your life, how much of that can really be connected to just your own ego, to just your own concern about what other people will think, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And for me, I also it also was kind of a, uh, uh, something that stunned me, but it also freed me because I realized, is that all I'm really risking here? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and it's just what, when you, if you can reach a point when you're willing to do something that will that potentially will make you look like a fool in front of other people, and that you're willing to do that. You have a great deal of freedom in your you're life. A, you're a free man when that happens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ah, the truth will set us free. First, it may make us a little miserable. Uh, but yeah. it may make us, you know, but then it will set we'll, us free. And I, and I we'll think be fr- we'll be free and miserable. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah. We'll be miserable and free. Um, yeah. I mean, in Henry Nouwen writes, you know, the three big things that get us in trouble are, I am what I have, I am what I do, I am what others think or say about me. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you can pause that risk, right, or at least take the risk, right, just yeah. reflect on yeah. it, take the risk, then you may be at the place, the inception point of making the great, beautiful contribution that you want to make to the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. That's all. Yeah, I think I think a lot of times, you know, you you you'll see a lot of writers talk about um, that the reason that we're not we're not doing things is that is that we have this kind of underlying fear of failure, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, but I actually think it's not as much a fear of failure as a fear that other people will see that we've failed. Ah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not the failure. We can live with that. It's the it's the story and that person's narrative that we're making up, right? Yeah. 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 That's good. Thank you for that. Um, well, let's get into this and, and forgive me, you know, I, I, I read your books and I feel like my, uh, Southern accent at times is not prepared for some of the names. Uh, is it, is it, is, 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 is it Shoma Morita? Was that his name? Yes, that's I, exactly correct. I did it. Yes. Shoma Morita. He, Tell me that, about that's him. That's the best, that's the best Southern pronunciation of that <laughs> Japanese name I've ever heard. Maybe the only one in a long time. Um, <laughs> So uh, this Marita therapy, tell, tell me about uh, Shoma, who he was, what he was about, and uh, what you've learned from him. Well, he was actually a, um, a psychiatrist. Uh, he died long before I was born, and he, you know, his work was primarily around the early 1900s. Um, and he was a Japanese psychiatrist. He was very prominent. Uh, he was the head of the Department of Psychiatry for GK University in uh, Tokyo, which is a very prominent university. Um, but he devised essentially a, a model or an approach to mental health that was really very different than what was going on in, in the West and in, in the West rest of the world at the time. At that time, you know, we were uh, Freudian psychology and Jungian psychology were very popular in Europe, and that was really what was what was and and still I think often 
most influential in terms of mm. Western psychology. Um, and there's a lot of interesting pieces of his work, but I think that the thing that, uh, one of the things that I found, I think, you know, most interesting was really the idea that uh, if you have, if you have a feeling state, let's say, for instance, like anxiety, and, um, and you want to do something, I'll use the, my own personal example, you want to get up and you want to perform on stage, um, but you have anxiety about doing that, right? And in the traditional Western approach, um, the idea is to somehow investigate that anxiety so that we can help you get rid of that anxiety so you can feel comfortable getting up on stage and performing. So there's a sequential process in which the anxiety has to be removed, kind of like surgic surgically removed in medicine, yeah. and then you're free to get up on stage and perform without anxiety. And Morita's work essentially said, if you have anxiety, um, what you need to do is to learn to coexist with that anxiety and feel anxious while you're walking up on stage and feel anxious while you're basically performing. Um, and that's the solution, that there is no, in, there's no need to actually um, try to remove uh, that anxiety or eliminate it. In fact, he said that's not even possible. But his approach was basically, you don't need to do anything about your anxiety except accept it and learn to coexist with it. Mm. And, and I found that just really brilliant and also, again, freeing in the sense that um, when we see people who feel like they're um, paralyzed or stopped from moving forward and taking action because of what's going on inside them, because of anxiety, because of, of fear, because of shyness. Um, here's an approach that says, there's nothing that you need to do about that. You just need to accept that that's what's going on and you need to learn the skill. And I think of this as a skill of coexisting with that feeling state while you're actually doing the thing that you need to do. And I, I'll tell you just one real quick story that I love to tell about a man that I worked with many uh, decades ago in the Washington DC area who came to me, he was extremely shy. It, 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 he would be um, uh, diagnosed as social phobic, I think today. Mm -hmm. um, and he was in his fifties. He worked for the defense department and he decided in his fifties that he wanted to start a family, he wanted to get married, he wanted to have kids, but he had never been on a date um, or with a woman in his life. Right. And so he said, I, I don't really know what to do. And so, uh, we talked about at that time there was no internet, so there was no internet dating or anything like that. So we talked about you know different ways he could he could meet women, and one of those ways was there was a singles mixer at the Regency Height Hotel um, in Northern Virginia where where he and I both lived at the time. And so and this, this is an example of what what I would do in terms of applying this work instead of sitting in an office with him and trying to help him solve this problem and work on his shyness. Um, we set up our next session at the singles mixer at the Hyatt Regency hotel on a Friday night at seven o'clock. So we met there for a one hour session, right? And during that, he, you know, we met there and, and during that session, um, I, I said, well, look around the room. Is there anybody that you, you would like to meet, you know, or that you, you think would, would be nice to meet? And he said, yeah, but I, I just can't go up to a woman and just meet them. I, I don't really know what to say. And I said, well, let's think of something to say. So he came up with this, you know, um, this very creative idea that he could walk up and, and say, hi, my name is Steve. Okay, so that was his, his opening line. So he had that set. But again, you know, he's relaying to me how anxious and uh, fearful he is of going up because what if, what if the person, what if the woman doesn't want to talk to him? What if she doesn't like him? What if she doesn't want to give him her, her phone number? You know, all of these ideas are going on in his mind. And I'm saying, um, you can't, this is another piece of Marita therapy where you look at what can you control and what can't you control, right? Mm. And the other person's response is uncontrollable. But what you do, your action is controllable. So we focused on what he could control, which essentially was walking up to somebody saying, hi, my name is Steve, and trying to start a conversation with the possible goal of, of maybe getting a phone number um, if that seemed appropriate. Right. And um, so his his practice, so to speak, was doing this, you know, for this hour, going up to a woman and doing exactly what I described. And in some cases, he came back in about 30 seconds. In some cases, he he 
talk to them for five or 10 minutes. Um, <clears throat> I, I was already dating somebody. So I just kind of was hanging out with a glass of wine, waiting to see what would happen with him. Um, and at the end of the hour, I said, I think you're doing pretty good. If you want to stay around, you can continue. I, I've got to get back home, you know, but uh, I think you did a great job. And, and that was essentially how we did quote unquote therapy, hmm. right? Hmm. That, that's how we applied Japanese psychology to that situation. And so one of the key things is, we're not going to solve his problem in my office because there's no single women in my office, yeah. right? And But there's single women at a singles mixer. So we go where we can actually solve his problem. But the other thing is we're not trying to do, we're not trying to figure out why is he anxious? Is this because of something that happened in his childhood? Is this because he has some insecurity that he just hasn't gotten in touch with? Um, and even, even if we uh, figure out, if we think we figure out why he's anxious, you know, do we have to use some kind of technique or um, uh, methodology to try to relieve his anxiety? So we bypass all of that, right? But what we're really trying to do is teach him that he can actually take that action while he feels anxious, yep. Yep. right? And I realize in retrospect that it was much easier in that situation 25 years ago to be the person who was telling him to do that because when it was my turn to actually walk up on that stage and perform in a club and and i had that same feeling that he did i i realized it's much harder to be the yeah. person doing that and yet he succeeded and i succeeded right we were able to coexist with our feelings and go ahead and do what we needed to do um, without having to essentially get rid of or fix or eliminate that feeling state yeah so that first, the, the, the first idea, I just want to get into this, make sure that mm -hmm. we're on the same page of Marita therapy is just accepting reality for what it is, right? Mm -hmm. Not fighting it, not demanding that it changes. Um, how much of our suffering in our lives may melt away if we just allowed what is to be what it is, right? That's the, that's the first mm -hmm. step. Yeah. And I think that acceptance and, um, there's actually a Japanese term for this. It's it's uh, called arugamama. And uh, next time I talk to you, I'm going to quiz you on that one. Aruga arugamama. Arugamama. And it means something like uh, uh, acceptance as it is or to accept as it is, right? And, um, and it's the idea of really just uh, um, if we can't control you know, our feeling state, which, which in Marita therapy, and, and I believe in, in reality, we can't, you know, mm. we, we don't, if we could control our depression, we could just will it, will ourselves not to be depressed mm. or our anxiety. Um, so what we really need to do is accept what we can't control. Um, and I think that, that, that also is very freeing because if you think about all the energy that, that we've put into trying to control things, like our kids, like our adult parents, like our, our spouses, I can go on and on, right? People we work with um, who are not controllable, their behavior is not controllable by us. And by learning acceptance, we allow us to shift all that energy into what we can control, right? Yeah. Which is writing books, playing music, you know, um, doing the things that are important for us to do in our life. Um, instead of putting our energy into things that we can't control, we put our energy into basically living our own life and doing the things that we can. Yeah, love it. Um, anything else with regards to Marita therapy that you think we need to know? <clears throat> well, I think the other important piece of this that, that was really a revolutionary idea for me when I first heard it was um, this uh, quote from Marita where he says, uh, anxiety is simply misdirected attention. Anxiety is simply misdirected attention. And what he was saying is something like, we're only anxious when we're noticing our anxiety. So in other words, um, when I'm walking up from my chair to the stage and I'm kind of immersed in this anxiety, all of my attention is on my feeling state of anxiety, mm -hmm. right? And then, <clears throat> and then I sit down at the piano and it's a blues jam. So they call out a song and they call out a key and suddenly I'm playing and I'm really focusing on the piano and my fingers and the playing. And in those moments, I'm not anxious, mm -hmm. right? Be and the reason is because my attention is now shifted. Right. And so a lot of, of Morita therapy, a lot of the training that I do is helping people to work with their attention so that their attention is less on themselves mm. yeah, yeah. and more 
more on the world around them. In other words, um, get out of your heads and get into the world, you know, in a very engaging, sensuous way. Sensuous meaning you use your senses, right? You use your sense of, of vision and your sense of sound and touch, like really connect with the world and, and in, do that instead of being so self-focused with your attention. Yeah. yeah. Right? Where energy goes, where attention goes, energy flows. Yeah. 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 And when, and when we're connecting with the world in that way, you know, this morning I, I, we were up early and we watched kind of the color in the sky from the sunrise. And in that moment, I'm not worried about everything on my to-do list and all the problems in my life and whether I can pay my car payment and, you know, my sister-in-law's illness. I don't, I'm not worried about anything because I'm just basically noticing what's going on at that moment in the world. Right. And, and so the more we can basically be present Mm-hmm. in a worldly kind of way, yeah. the less basically we have uh, get in, engaged in this kind of self, self-attention, self-focused type of, of uh, attention. Um, and without that self-focused attention, we're very much free from a lot of these things like anxiety and fear and depression. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. This, but it's, such, it's such a radical idea to think, you know, you're, you're only depressed when you're noticing that you're depressed. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and when, maybe when you're not fully present, in, with the current moment, uh, when you're not okay, when you haven't accepted that current moment, uh, and maybe true presence is taking the, you know, accepting the current moment and then doing something about it for that which you can control. Yeah, um, and and when you're doing something, that's another opportunity to basically put your attention on what you're doing. Yeah, right. That's right. Whether you're <clears throat> whether you're gardening or playing the piano or or um, setting up your you know your audio system in your studio what, whatever it is that you're doing cooking um, if you can really be present and paying attention to that instead of going through all of your problems and difficulties and aches and pains and things that are going on in your life um, you you could change your experience of life not because not because um, you're changing what you're what you're doing but because you're shifting your attention to what you're doing. Yep. Talk to me about uh, Kaizen, this idea of uh, continuous improvement. I've heard that word before. I feel like it was connected to like Toyota and their factory. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, that's very, very good. It, it's actually a method from Japan. But interestingly, it's a method from Japan that was brought to Japan by an American after World War mm. II when Japan's industry was pretty much you know, non-existent after their um, defeat in the war. And <clears throat> we had an interest in helping to rebuild Japan because at that time we were now in, in a war with Korea and, and there was stuff mm-hmm. going on in China mm-hmm. we were worried about. So we actually wanted to help rebuild their society. And we sent over a man named Edward Deming, um, who basically taught them an approach to, um, uh, to essentially revitalizing and rebuilding their industry called, that they called Kaizen, um, which uh, is an approach of kind of that, that for many years took place within an organizational or an industrial organization, mm-hmm. right? Um, but it's, it's more recently, um, there's some people in the U.S. Have, who have taken some of these basic principles and strategies from Kaizen and found out that this actually works very effectively in terms of um, uh, personal accomplishment and not just in an organizational setting. And so um, in, in a, uh, again, in a simple way, um, Kaizen works with very um, uh, small steps, right? So it's this idea of, of, you know, if somebody is wants to get some exercise, except they haven't they haven't exercised in 20 years and they're 150 pounds overweight. Um, maybe the, f- the first thing that they start doing is they put on their shoes and they walk around their house one time, no. right? And then they, they can go back and sit on the couch the rest of the day. Um, but they just do that one time. And, but they do it every day, right? And, uh, and if they decide while they're outside that they want to walk around the house a second time, that's okay. But their commitment is just to walk around the house one time. And in Kaizen, those, those individual steps aren't going to um, get you very far in terms of your accomplishment, but they do something more important, particularly initially, which is they give you momentum. Mm. Yeah. And you start, and whether you're, whether it's flossing your teeth or exercising or writing a book, when you begin to do something, even in a very small way, but on a regular basis, you build that momentum, right? And one of the Newton's laws of physics is that you, an object um, that is that is moving, 
you know, will continue to move unless it meets some kind of opposing force, right? So as we have momentum, it becomes easier to take those steps. Most of us intuitively have had that experience, yeah. right? Yeah. And, um, and so Kaizen, this is just one, I think, important aspect of it, helps you to, to, to take action by basically just starting with very small steps. But when you do that consistently, you build momentum and that momentum is extremely valuable in terms of, of ultimately being able to do something like writing a novel or, or, you know, losing a lot of weight or something that's kind of a big project. I love it. Is, and, and I'm, I wonder, I see the word Zen kind of hanging out in this word. Is there any etymology there from the Japanese language of any connections to the whole concept of Zen? Um, I wonder if there's any connection there. Yeah, I think that um, uh, I've worked with a number of people. My own, I, actually, my own background is also in, in uh, Zen Buddhism. So I, I lived for a short period of time in, in a Zen monastery in mm. Japan, for example. Um, so I'm very familiar with Zen. I think that a lot of the material that I'm covering in the book um, is maybe a way of interpreting mm -hmm. Zen. And th there's a lot of consistency, for instance, in mindfulness practice, in being in the present moment, in the idea of just accepting our internal state without necessarily having to, to yeah. act or react to it. Yeah. Um, so on the one hand, it's, I, I don't think it is Zen. There's no religious aspect to, to, this, to this work that I'm talking about. But I think you could fairly say that in some cases it draws on what might be thought of as the psychological principles that we would find in Zen. Yeah, yeah, right on. Um, just, I was totally out of left field and, and just out <laughs> of curiosity seeing that there. So as we enter this new year, um, you know, we all get resolutions. We say we're going a new direction. We're going we're gonna to be a new man, a new woman, all different things. Um, how, how would you invite our listeners to consider kind of the art of taking action as they enter into maybe whatever that fresh new horizon looks like for them? Well, um, well, first of all, if people are listening to this and, and uh, <clears throat> you're just getting started in the year, I want to wish you a happy new year. And, and I want to see if I can make some suggestions that might make it a, a better year for you. A lot of us have struggled between the pandemic and other things going on over the past couple of years. So I think we're all, all kind of cautiously optimistic yep. that, um, that this year might bring us a, a little bit of a different experience. Um, so the first suggestion I'm going to make is going to sound kind of strange and, and morbid, but <clears throat> it's the idea of starting with the consideration of your own mortality. Okay. That um, before you do your resolutions or set your goals or decide what it is that you really want to accomplish or work on this year, step back and think about the fact that you're going to die. Now, that sounds very morbid. <clears throat> and I'm going to take it one step further, which is there's a website called timeanddate.com where you can calculate uh, on average how many days you have left to live. Wow. And I do this on a probably about you know five or six times a year and my number keeps going down so there's a kind of trend there that I'm not too happy with but uh, <clears throat> but uh, the way you do that is if you go to that website you can put in your birthday and check off today and it will calculate how many days you've already lived right hmm. that's just a matter of fact and then we use the number 30,000 which is a, a rough uh, estimate of the number of days that that someone in in uh, the U.S. or Canada would have to live, and if you subtract that number from the website from thirty thousand, then you have the shock of seeing how many days mm. on average you may have left to live. Now there are people who get a lot more days than that, but there's also a lot of very famous people like Whitney Houston, for example, or um, <clears throat> uh, Steve Jobs, who get a lot less days than that. So nobody really knows. But actually seeing that number is, is a real wake-up call for a lot of people, including me. And, um, and for those of you who think that this might be kind of a, a morbid or depressing idea, I see this as an inspiration. Hmm. When I have to, have to look at a number, particularly a number that goes down, for how many days I have to live, my um, mind automatically jumps to what's really important for me hmm. to do. 
right? And that's really what I want people to be thinking about. You know, um, <clears throat> if if cleaning your you know your downstairs closet is really important for you to do, that's great. But if it's not, if you really think about the fact that that you know this could be your last year of life, and if that doesn't rise to the top, then don't do that. Hmm. You know. Um, don't don't clean that downstairs closet. You know, write those poems, or or write that book, or that song, or or do something that's important, or something that's creative, something that's meaningful uh, for your life. And I think a lot of what, what happens with people in the new year in terms of resolutions is we make a list of tasks that are just kind of things that need to be done in our life, but not necessarily things that are really important we're meaningful in our life. And I think ultimately that's where this work really needs to take us mm -hmm. is to basically allow us to um, move past the, the clutter of all of the different tasks. Cause there's always going to be unfinished tasks. Yeah. It's always going to be dirty dishes and, and closets that need to be cleaned out and leaves that need to be raked. <laughs> um, but can we move that aside and really get to the things that are really meaningful in our life? And, and that's, I think, where I'm trying to help people people get to, and I'm trying to help them get there, you know, before they reach the end of their life, while they still got time to do those important things. Beautiful. So that would be, yeah, that would be my my first suggestion. And I think, um, let's see, I think my second suggestion is something just I referred to earlier, which is to really think about what is it that you know you're here to do, right? And um, people often would come to me and they'd say, you know, well, I have this job and uh, I've been doing this for 20 years or 30 years. I'm not really happy. I don't feel like I'm really make, having any impact. Um, you know, I kind of, sometimes they'll say, I, you know, I really dread going to work every day, um, but it, it pays well. Um, but as soon as I retire in, in 10 years or in 12 years or in 15 years, then I'm going to do what I really want to do. <laughs> Know? And my response to that is don't wait those 10 or 12 or 15 years because I've known too many people um, who never get to that point or they get to that point, but they're seriously ill, right? Um, and so if, if, if it's clear to you that there's something important for you to do, don't put it off. Figure out how to do it now, even if it's small steps, right? Even if it's going from full-time to part-time or something like that, figure out a way to make that happen. Because um, if you start thinking in terms of, you know, when I retire or when the kids are out of college, um, uh, you, you may be lucky and you may, you may be able to follow through on that. But there's a lot of people who, who aren't able to do that because life has changed in ways they didn't anticipate. Yeah. Yeah. Any insight on like, um, consistency, right? Building that momentum um, for, for whatever may be a new habit, ritual, or practice mm -hmm. that, that, that one may want to um, build into this year? You know, there's, um, there's a <clears throat> book about the, the rules of the Benedict, Benedictine monks yeah. called we, we Begin Again. It's an interpretation of the, of the rules. Um, and it's a wonderful book. And one of the things that's in the book, it says, it, it finishes one of the passages and it says, and when we fail, um, we begin again. Fall not if we, we fail, up. not, not if we fail, but when we fail. Right. Yeah. And so I'm going to suggest that, um, uh, there's very few of us who are going to take on anything and be 100% consistent. Right. And so at some point in time, you're just going to fall down. You're going to fall flat on your face. You're going to um, lose your momentum. You're going to, something's going to interrupt, you know, your, your life and your time that, that takes you away from that. And, you know, the most important thing is really, it's not about not falling down. It's about getting up quick, hmm. right? So if you, if you lose your momentum, you know, because you miss a day or you miss a week or whatever it is, that's okay. Just basically get started again. You know, don't, don't go through all the questions, like, why am I like this? Why can't I follow through? Like, that's all self-focused attention, right? You just said, okay, you know, I blew it on my diet today and now it's a fresh day. Just going to get started again. And you just, the quicker you do that, the less time you spend on the ground. Oh, well said. Um, and out of curiosity, I mean, now that this work that you've been interacting with for, for decades has been in the world from Nikon to the art of taking action um, Morita therapy, 
Ashawagama, something like that. Can't remember exactly how you pronounced it. Um, <laughs> it it's a word that's close to that, though, and it is in the book because I remember reading it, but I don't remember it exactly. Um, you know, what, what, is, what is it that if you could, as here we are beginning a new year, uh, I, you know, I ask the question all the time, what advice would you give to your younger self? But truly, like, uh-huh. what, what is it that you would, uh, looking back on the years, to your younger self in, uh-huh. in some January consciousness, uh, what, what would you say? Hmm. Well, I would say, you know, I was fortunate to have discovered this work um, half my life ago when I was 33 years old. Um, so first half of my life, I basically didn't know anything about this. And, um, and I ended up messing up a lot of things as a result. But if I had to pick one thing, I would say it relates to energy. And, and energy hmm. is, is not something that I got from, from Japanese psychology, um, <clears throat> but it's something I've really grown to value and appreciate that, that uh, this question of where we put our energy. And I think the one thing I would, would tell my younger self is that um, uh, really be careful about where you're putting your energy. Um, which includes, are you putting your energy into trying to fix other people? Are you putting your energy into trying to basically get other people to live their life differently? Are you putting your energy into watching um, things, uh, television screens, computer screens, with information that, that really isn't something you want, that you, that's going to nourish your own you know, wisdom uh, in life? And so when we start thinking about everything is energy, and we start really thinking about you know, where do I really want to put my energy, right? Um, that if I could tell my younger self, um, give some advice, I would say, put your energy in the things that really matter uh, in terms of how you are living your life, right? Let other people live their own life, put your energy into things that really matter in terms of your life. And um, I've done more of that lately, but I didn't, didn't do very much of it, I think, earlier in my life. And, and I think it's, it would have been great advice for me to, to hear, although I probably wouldn't have heard it when I was uh, in my 20s, but it would have been great advice to hear at that time. Beautiful. Um, well said, and thank you for that. And, and, and guys, make sure you do go get a copy of this, The Art of Taking Action. Uh, I noticed a Stephen Pressfield mentioned in the book too, uh-huh. uh, hero of mine. Uh, that's that's a good that's a good chaser, you know, turning pro <laughs> or the war of art. It, it would go well with mm-hmm. this book. Yeah, I love Stephen Pressfield's work, and and I love how just direct he is. You know, mm-hmm. just basically he talks about resistance, yep. you know, as the enemy, and yep. uh, um, it's uh, it's very. I think it's. It, I think he's got a real handle on on this material. Yep, yep, no doubt. Well, um, Greg, I am super grateful again for you, your work, and your your energy in the world. Uh, it's enriched my life. It's enriched our community here. And uh, one of these days, I don't know how, but but I'm pretty sure we're going to cross paths. I'm going to get to shake your hand. Um, Good. Well, I'm I'm hoping you'll get up to Vermont and and do a, a retreat or a residential program up here. I need to do it. It's on the bucket list. <laughs> I, need, I, I, I need to make that happen. Well, again, thank you for your time and your generosity. Uh, I know you're a busy man, and uh, we're just grateful for you and the wisdom you share with us. Yeah. Well, thank you, Ashton. I hope you have a great year. And I really, um, I love what you're doing. I'm familiar with with a number of the people on your guest list. And I think you're doing a great job of kind of bringing some really important wisdom to the uh, uh, people who are in your audience. And so I hope you continue to do that um, with great success this year. Thanks so much. 